As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. I would rather have a B minus market and an A plus property management company because in the long run, they'll save you money and I believe you'll be better off. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode, are you looking for some financing, maybe some more money to do your fix and flip projects? Are you looking to grow your fix and flip business? Well, guess what? Got a solution for you. It's Fund That Flip. You know Fund That Flip. Matt Rodak, the founder of Fund That Flip, has been on the show multiple times. He's a friend of mine, and they love working with the best ever listeners. They provide short-term fix and flip loans to experienced investors. They've got an online platform, makes the entire process super easy, and you can get funded in as few as seven days that quick. So if you're looking for a reliable funding partner, Go to fundthatflip.com. That's F-U-N-D-T-H-A-T-F-L-I-P.com. Best ever listeners, how are you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. I'm with Theo Hicks. If I sound different, I just mentioned to Theo that it's because I just got back from the dentist about 20 minutes ago and half my face is numb. So <laughs> I am drooling all over myself as we do this episode to give you a nice visual. So Theo, we got some listener questions that we're going to be talking about and answering and then some updates. And I think we should go ahead and kick it off. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back, Joe. You've been gone for a couple of weeks. Looking forward to asking a couple of questions about your vacation. But, but yeah, we're going to change up the order a little bit today and just dive straight into listener question. And most of these questions are around performing due diligence on apartment building. So that'll be the kind of the main theme of the episode. So we've got questions from three different people. The first set of questions are from Carolyn. And her first question is, what happens during the due diligence period between getting the property under contract and close? Well, we have 10 steps that you will complete and we'll go through those. We have them written down. The high-level answer is that you qualify the property based on your assumptions that you've made in underwriting, and you see if anything is different from the assumptions that you made. So ultimately, it is a fact-finding period and if you find facts that don't align with what you assumed going into it, then you renegotiate or back out or move forward 
and knowing that you've got a different set of assumptions mm -hmm. or facts that you're dealing with. So if I can see this, please. We wrote down 10 things that you need to complete from a report standpoint for the due diligence process. And keep in mind, this is for apartment communities. If we're talking single family homes, then it won't be as robust mm -hmm. of a process. So we're talking specifically apartment communities. If it's hotels, if it's industrial, I don't know. I've never closed on any of that stuff. So find someone who has. But if you're asking about apartment communities, which it wasn't mentioned exactly what you're referring to, but I'm going to assume you're talking about apartment communities. So number one is a financial audit. Really important. One of the lessons I learned on my first property is the importance of identifying occupancy versus economic occupancy. And the financial mm -hmm. audit will determine that. And how you will do that is ideally you hire a third party company to do that for you. And they will look at the bank statements and juxtapose them with the financial statements that were provided and also with the rent roll to make sure they all line up mm -hmm. and perhaps juxtapose is the right word, maybe cross-reference is the better word. So you want to do the financial audit. That's number one to determine if there are any discrepancies in the financial statements that are being reported and what's actually being generated by the property. Huge thing that you need to take into account. Number two is a internal property condition assessment. Basically, you want to take a look at the property and assess all the areas that need to be fixed and areas that need some fixing perhaps in the near future. And then what is operating properly? We hire a third party company to do that for us as well. Number three is a market survey and condition report. The main purpose of this is to make sure that the rental assumptions that you have are accurate and that your assumptions are conservative and they're hopefully not the market leader for what you anticipate your rent to be. And that market survey is typically done by your property management company. We always, we meaning Theo, myself, Frank, my business partner, and the Ashcroft team, we always do this market survey ourselves prior to getting it under contract. We call up the comps. In addition, when we visit the property before we have it under contract, we go visit the comps. But in addition to us doing it, we have our property management partner do it as well to make sure there's nothing that we're missing or that they're missing. File and lease audit, you'll need a company to do the audit of the rent are the leases and the lease contracts and make sure that they are accurate and reflective of what they're actually paying in rent and there's nothing out of the ordinary. And I know from your closing, you came across something like this. What, yeah. what happened again? Yeah, I should have done the lease audit on my property. Just the rents that we were verbally told were not the same as the rents that were on the leases. They were higher, not they? the same as the lease, the rent that we actually were receiving. <laughs> we were told one thing, that was a middle number. The leases were the lowest number, and what we actually got was the highest number. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's beautiful. 
normally it doesn't end up good when you don't do the lease audit. In your case, it ended up as a favorable outcome. Five is a unit walkthrough. Surprisingly, I get a question every now and then, do we need to walk through every one of the units? Yes, we do. We have to walk through every one of the units. The ones that we're not getting access to, those are the ones we should be most suspicious of. Mm -hmm. They can't get a hold of the resident because there's a dog and they can't pin the dog up. The resident works third shift. The resident is out of town and the locks don't work. All these excuses you're going to hear and all these excuses you're going to have to push aside and say, I know, but in order to close, I still need to see the inside of the unit because we've got to do our inspection of the interior. That's another quick example of that. I was on top of this thing, my updates, but I might as well do it now because it's relevant to this. This happened to me for my properties too because there was 12 units and we got into every single unit during the inspection and the appraisal period except for one unit. And I was like, oh, I mean, whatever. Like all the other units, they're fine and there can't be anything that's too wrong or it'll cost too much money. And so I didn't see it. And then I got lucky, but um, you know how like the water bills are staggered quarterly? Mm-hmm. And so, so we bought the property in July. We got our first water bill at the end of August. And I'm looking at it, and they come in, and like the first one is what I expected to be, and the second one is what I expected to be, and the third property, it's like three times high as all the other properties for the month. I was like, what's going on? So I go over there for the plumber, because we assume it's a leak somewhere for the water bill, and we go in the basement, and we can hear water running through the main sewage line, and we go to the unit above it, and there's no leak in there, and we go to the unit above it, and it's like, and it clicks, and it's like, oh my god, I've never seen this unit before. <laughs> And we go in there, and literally his faucet is just running, like oh. full go. I turned it off and on, it didn't change at all. <laughs> and he said it's been like that since he moved in, and I had no idea. And I go, hey, do you mind if we get into your unit? Do you think there's a leak in there? And he's like, it's been leaking since I got here. I've been telling you people to fix this leak. And I was like, oh, well, thanks for telling me now. So like, we got in there, we had replaced the entire vanity, and now I'm looking forward to, based off of how much money we're losing from water, pays the repairs pay for itself. It was just going full on. Full go. Oh, man. For how long? How long did he live there? I think he had been there for a couple of months. I was like talking to him and I was like, like, did you ever bring this up to the last owners? They gave him one time, but then when they didn't reply, I just figured they figured it out when they saw the water bill. (laughs) Well, I I did. Gosh. So yeah, make sure you do walk through every single unit because you don't want something like that happening to you. Especially if you pay for utilities. Yeah, if there was a rub program, ratio utility billback system, then that resident, he would have found you at where you live and be like, hey, listen, I need this fixed because I'm having to pay for it. Number six, site survey. This just shows the boundary of your property and shows where your property line is, etc. Number seven, property condition assessment. This is done by a third party that the lender selects. So the lender does their assessment. Eight environmental site assessment, making sure that there's not any environmental issues that are present. Nine, appraisal, you know what the appraisal is. And number 10 is a green report, which evaluates the potential energy and water conservation measures on the property and estimates the initial investment and the cost savings to do so. So those are 10 things. I told you high level what you're looking for and then got very granular in there, the 10 things for that. Uh, Carolyn, you also asked, how is the current and future property management transitioned? Well, when we close, let's say we close at 4 p.m. on a Tuesday, 
at 3 p.m. on Tuesday, our management team is outside the gate of the property. Mm. And at 4 p.m., as soon as they get word, we are on the property and we're managing the property right out of the gate. We have a process leading up to that point to make sure that they have all the information they need and that's why they're so involved in the due diligence process because they'll be familiar with the property and segueing into it versus it being just something that happens out of the blue. Number three, how do you determine the renovation plan? How do you estimate costs? Let me answer a larger question. How do you determine the business plan? And the business plan is determined based on the market and what you can do within that market. And a renovation is one component of the business plan. So how do you determine the renovation plan? You look at where is the market at and you see what can the market support in renovations. Some renovations will be higher end, some won't be as higher end. And as far as the estimate of costs go, well, two things. One, you should have a team member, either yourself or someone on your team, who can do renovation estimates for what is needed. And then you also need, not want, but you need to have a on-the-ground management partner who can also provide those renovation estimates independent of yours. And then you give them yours, they give you theirs, and then you see what are the differences, any discrepancies, and then you reconcile. That wraps up Carolyn's questions. Next, we have got a couple of questions about doing due diligence on market from Sylvia. And she said, I am new to investing and want to do my due diligence in choosing a stable market in which to invest. I appreciate your methodology and how you choose your market. And I'm thinking since this is, she's new, I'm thinking she's talking single families, yes. is my guess. Yeah. And she says, looking on the Bureau of Labor Statistics website, specifically the regional homepages, is this where I get my data to see job growth for the region in which I would like to invest? Or is there something better? As far as I know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics does have employment data and job data, but I like to get all my information from one place because they're just pulling their information from the Census Bureau anyways. Is I like going straight to the raw Census Bureau data to get all my market information. Since you kind of asked, what's our methodology? The exact factors that we look at, there's seven of them. We look at unemployment, specifically the five-year unemployment change for the market. We look at the population growth over five years for both the city population, but also the larger metropolitan area that they call the MSA. We look at the population age growth. And so we look at on the census, you can get the age ranges, and then you can see how that's changed year after year. And that kind of helps you know what type of property may or may not be in demand. And you want to look for millennials or, I don't know what the generation is who's 20 years old, but 20 to 34-year-olds, that's our ideal renter mm-hmm. population. So you want a larger population representation of them relative to others and relative to other markets. Mm-hmm. And then we look at job diversity, which you mentioned. And yes, you can find that on the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but you can also find it on the Census Bureau. And, and here again, it's just, it'll have what the industry is, like, you know, healthcare or public services, and it'll have a percentage of the population that's in there. And as we talk about on a lot of the podcasts, we're talking about work, you don't want to see a industry have more than 25% of the jobs, mm-hmm. because if that industry were to take a hit, then those jobs will be affected. 
two extreme examples, Dallas-Fort Worth, 14% is the industry that has the most, so it's incredibly diverse. That's why we love Dallas-Fort Worth, and that's why we're buying in Mm -hmm. Dallas-Fort Worth. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, Las Vegas, 28% hospitality, obviously, hospitality. So it's heavy-handed in tourism and that industry. Mm -hmm. So as you said, you just don't want it to be heavy-handed one you want ideally to be as diverse as possible. That also comes back to relating to number five, which is you want to look at the top ten employers. So similar to job diversity, if you look at the top ten employers and there's one company that has all the jobs, that's something to look into as well. And then you want to look at some supply and demand factors. And so for demand, you want to look at the rental vacancy rates. And again, this is something you want to track over time. And then you also want to look at the number of building permits for five plus unit buildings. That's how the census breaks it down. And then number seven, kind of anything of noteworthy for that market. So, you know, so you know, Google that market name, Google business in that market, unemployment in that market, and see what other information you can find on that market, any you know, new jobs that are coming there, new development, things like that. And so what you want to do when selecting a market, you want to kind of just pick seven different markets at least, and then make a spreadsheet and kind of log all the data for the seven different markets for all these factors, and then compare them across to see how unemployment is trending downward for this one, but is trending more downward for this market. And this market over here has got really poor demand. And so you want to do that and kind of analyze and compare and then write out your market insights for those markets in order to select which one is the best. So I kind of answers all of our questions, but I'll read them anyway. So to find employment diversity, would you look at the Wikipedia page for the specific area I'm researching, or is there something better? So again, for the job diversity, for those percentages of population in certain industries, they can find that on the census. For those top 10 employers, that might be something you can find on Wikipedia. I recommend just Googling the city name plus top employers, and somewhere in that city it'll be logged, whether it's done by the city itself or some journal in that city recorded that information. Um, you'll be able to find that somewhere on the internet. And finally, she asks, will you recommend an article or book that will enlighten a new investor to analyze markets? Thanks for taking the time to answer these questions. So there are a lot of different market reports that are released every year on an annual basis or a biannual basis. I know Marcus and Millichap has a really good one. If you just Google, you know, Marcus and Millichap market analysis. I know another one that we use is a cap rate survey that's done on a biannual basis by CBRE North America. And these are all free reports. Yep. You well, just Google it and you'll find it. You might have to put in your info, give them your email address. Another report you can read is by IRR. It's called the Commercial Real Estate Trends Report. And then there's two more. Another one is by Zillow. This one's actually more for understanding the consumer, so understanding the demographics of the type of person that's going to be renting or who wants to rent and why they want to rent and what they want when they're renting. And what do they search for to find that one? Zillow Consumer Housing Trend Report. Okay. Again, you'll get different information from all of those. Overall trend of the real estate market, you'll get it specific to multifamily, you'll get it on the consumer end. So I'd recommend just reading the reports. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we hooked you up with definitely more information you need if you're investing in single family. If you're investing in multifamily, you just got the whole kit and caboodle for what to look for and reports to look at. If you're investing in single family and you're looking for a market, then 
Those seven items that Theo went through are relevant. And the thing to keep in mind is if you're not going to manage it yourself, the management partner is critical to your success. So I would personally, if I had to choose between a A-plus market and a B-minus property management company, I would rather have a B-minus market and an A-plus property management company because in the long run, they'll save you money and I believe you'll be better off. So put a high premium on finding the right management partner in your area. Awesome. So that wraps up Sylvia's question. The last person who submitted a question was Logan. And he said, I have a specific question on raising money for a deal. You said that you want to get a commitment from people and have the money lined up prior to finding a deal. This is opposite somewhat from the way single family housing is done, as you know. So my question is, in order for these brokers to take me seriously, also for my own knowledge, should I be asking for my potential investors to provide me with the proof of funds for the money when they say they have to invest? In order to get started, you likely will need a proof of funds in order to show brokers or sellers directly that you have the ability to close. I did a video on this. It's a less than two-minute video. In YouTube, search Proof of Funds Joe Fairless. So search Proof of Funds Joe Fairless. And the less than two-minute video will tell you exactly how to acquire the proof of funds. I'll give you the cliff note versions right now because I know your time is valuable. And that is go to an investor of yours, ask him or her to provide a screenshot of their bank statement that shows the amount that you need in order to close on whatever deal you're working on. And or maybe you just want a bank statement so that you can make offers on many deals, just have a price range so you know how big of a bank statement you need then have them mark out their info. And why they do that for you, one, they just might be a nice person, but two, if you need to compensate them, then what I did for one of my investors is that I paid him $5,000 after we closed on an apartment community. So I was only paying him after I received money from closing on a deal. So he did not receive a penny until I closed on a deal. Then once I closed, I gave him 5000 from the closing proceeds that I received. And he loved it. It's a great way to build loyalty with a large investor of yours. So that's one way. Depending on how big your deal is, instead of 5000 maybe it's $500. Maybe it's $100. I don't know. Maybe it's free. Maybe mm -hmm. I just want to help you out. That's just one specific example for what I did, and you can take that structure and then rework it however you see fit. And the person that's going to be giving you their bank statement, the amount of money they need in their account is what's going to be required as a down payment for the property? Yeah, the equity that would be required. Okay. So if you're looking for a million dollar property, then let's say 35%, a 25% down payment, 10% miscellaneous, closing costs, etc. So $350,000 proof of funds for a million dollar property. So use that 35% rule and you'll be good. Awesome. That wraps up the listener questions. Now we're moving to some updates we have. So we even had done this for, what, two, three weeks now? Two, three weeks, yeah. I was in Italy and at the dentist and all sorts of fun things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask you, what was the most enjoyable part of being in Europe? 
For, is it your first time going over there? First time. Okay. It was eating lasagna for lunch and dinner seven days in a row. Really? Yeah, I love lasagna. <laughs> I, I love Italian food. Yeah. I love lasagna too. In Italy, yeah. Eating lasagna in Italy for seven days in a row for lunch and dinner. And did you try different lasagna at different restaurants? Oh, yes. Yeah, ev- everywhere. Yep, the best one I had was in Venice. And it was just right on the water, and it was delicious. The worst one I had had no meat sauce in it at all. It was just lasagna noodle, which I didn't realize that's what lasagna is, the actual noodle. Mm. I thought it was the big meat chunk and everything. <laughs> it's just like a millimeter tall of three pieces of noodle with some pesto sauce in the middle. I was like, someone deflated the lasagna. I don't know what happened here. But it was pretty authentic from what I was told, but it didn't satisfy my appetite. <laughs> and then anything else from a business perspective? One thing I noticed, and this is a business perspective, we'll see how it applies to real estate, but certainly any entrepreneur who has a restaurant or something like that, and that is it's so obvious that when a group of people are sitting down at a restaurant, it attracts more tourists to that restaurant Mm. compared to if the restaurant has zero people, that restaurant takes a long time to get people to gravitate towards it because no one wants to be the first person sitting down. We witness this time and time again. There would be two restaurants, both empty. Colleen and I would just randomly choose to pick one. And then once we sat there over the next hour, the place would be packed. And the other restaurant, zero people. And we did this randomly. And Mm -hmm. we did it like four or five times. Just people will see, oh, well, they're eating there. And they're eating there. Okay, we'll eat there too. Must be good. There's no rhyme or reason. So my idea for them was if I'm a local restaurant owner, what I would do is I would pay a couple to just sit there, have Mm. a bottle of wine, I'd comp their wine, and that's it. And then guaranteed, they would make 10 times return on their investment paying for a $30 bottle of wine and some bread and maybe some cheese, whatever. It's a business decision that these individuals need to make. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how that applies to real estate. <laughs> I can't make the connection, but that's just an observation that I have from a business standpoint. My recommendation would just be a restaurant is real estate. I know you've interviewed people on the podcast before we bought a restaurant before. So like, you need to open a restaurant, Joe. Heck no. no, no. <laughs> they seem very difficult to run. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Outside of my trip, from a business standpoint, yeah, we got a 304 unit under contract. We're closing December the 5th, and I think the last follow-along Friday we did, I had just closed on a property in Dallas, a 244-unit. That was August 31st. So now we got another one under contract, the 304-unit, so we're excited about that. Is this the biggest deal you've done to date? Unit size, yes. Transaction size, yes, too. So, yeah. Okay. Yep. Well, congratulations. I've got one interesting thing that happened, and I want to ask you a question about it, see if you have any input, but I have a lot of difficulty finding certain appliances for the unit, specifically an 18-inch dishwasher. I don't know where those things are. I was going to Craigslist. I was going to resale shops that people donate old appliances, and they have, everyone has those 24-inchers. It's so difficult to find 18-inch dishwashers. So I was thinking, okay, so whenever I see one of these dishwashers, I should probably buy it because... Like what happens if a dishwasher goes down? Like it, it happened and I had to wait four weeks to replace it. Like that doesn't look good. Yeah. And so my question was, I wonder if you've ever come across this, but 
And you can talk about behalf for your large apartments, but you know, what do they do for appliance inventory at your larger apartments? Like, do they have a couple of fridges and a couple of stoves on site just in case someone breaks and they can replace it instantaneously? Do they wait for it to break down to buy one? Or how does that work for a larger apartment? Just so I can kind of figure that out and figure out how I can scale that down to my size. Three different ways. One is you can buy in bulk and have them stored at the group that you purchase them from and then they'll just ship them to you as you need them but you buy in bulk because you get that big discount mm -hmm. that's number one number two you just do what you're doing you replace it as needed from whenever you find it you just go and buy something from a, a local vendor three is that if something breaks down and you need to replace it immediately you can pull from a vacant unit and then use that okay. and then replace the vacant unit over a longer period of time so that you immediately address the residence issue and then you have a little bit more time with the unit that no one's living in. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. For the larger apartment, that vacant one would be very helpful. For ours, hopefully it would have been vacant, but we're at 100%. So I think for now, I literally plan on going on Craigslist a couple times a week and seeing if I can find any of those dishwashers because dishwashers are so expensive. and just for What are they, 300 Man, I don't. I think they're more than that. Really? I, the ones I was looking at were were five hundred. Huh, that's expensive. Which was, I was very surprised. I was expecting a hundred bucks, which is no, I don't know why I, I was expecting that. <laughs> but so I recommend to anyone for your rentals, if you're flipping houses, if you go on Craigslist, they have some very very nice appliances on there for sale. The ones I bought from but my apartments weren't very nice. Craigslist is local, so you don't. That's a good point. That's just where you live. I would definitely recommend checking it out if you live in a big city. Okay. If you're near a big city, because... A big city like Cincinnati, then... If we got good ones, then I'm sure anyone who lives in another big city will have yeah. plenty of like, like I saw the fridge that we have at our house for like 300 bucks on there. I was like... Oh, Do you also God. get stabbed when you meet up with the person, though? I, I don't, I don't, I don't <laughs> and think... And then they take 300 from you? Yeah, I, I don't have a truck, so I have my contractor pick all this stuff oh, up. So fair. if anybody gets stabbed, it'll be... <laughs> All right, so that's all the updates I have. Just some miscellaneous things. You've got an interview being released on Tuesday yeah. with Josh. Josh Dorkin, founder of Bigger Pockets. You know him. He is going to be on the show this coming Tuesday. And guess what? We did a little special thing, a two-part interview. So this Tuesday is part one, and then the conclusion of the interview will be the following Tuesday, part two. Enjoy it. This is the best ever conference as well? Yeah, we got conference. The early bird tickets are through Halloween. And if you haven't made plans to attend, then first off, shame on you. And secondly, let's go. Let's come hang out. See us in Denver. It will be a educational experience. It will be fun. And... I will say that you're going to come away thinking this is truly the best server conference you've been to. I can say that because we had some exit interviews and surveys with last year's attendees, and that's what they said. Awesome. As always, if you're listening or you're watching, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a review for the chance to be the review of the week. This week we've got Carafus, and Carafus says... Joe is extremely knowledgeable about the business of real estate and fundraising. Always great information and no BS. He asks his guests great, thoughtful questions. He's also very well-spoken and articulate, which is rare in this industry. 
I listen daily. I thought you liked that well-spoken, articulate part. Yeah. You have to agree, you speak very well. Well, unless half my face is numb <laughs> from the dentist yeah. chair. This is perfect for today, then. For today. Well, thank you for those wonderful words. I sincerely appreciate it. And the show is because all of you listening, that's what really drives us. So grateful and much appreciated. BestEverConference.com is the website. I wanted to mention that. Well, Theo, enjoy bringing it back. Yep. And best ever listeners, grateful you are listening. Looking forward to talking to you soon. You want to get better at negotiating real estate? Well, how about do you want to get better at negotiating real estate for free? Even better, right? Well, go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Fund That Flip, today's sponsor, has partnered with bestselling author Jay Scott to provide you with a free chapter from Jay's new book, on negotiating real estate. I've read the book, lots of good real world case studies sprinkled in there too. I love it when they do that. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever to download your free copy of the chapter today. When it's Friday at 4.30 p.m., it's time for Entrepreneur Drinks Podcast, which is co-produced by Joint Ops Properties and Discount Property Investors. Join their end of the work week session as they tackle problems facing entrepreneurs. Listen and subscribe at entrepreneurdrinks.com. That's entrepreneurdrinks.com.